Many of you will be familiar with the annual get-together that happens on Grafton Street around Christmas time, featuring some of our most high-profile musicians over the years. Bono, Glenn Hansard and many more have assembled around, in and around that wonderful shopping street to bring cheer to last-minute Christmas shoppers and to send messages of hope to the world. Many of those artists, including the aforementioned Glenn Hansard and Bono, have now been assembled on an album entitled The Busk Record, which will be released tomorrow with all of the proceeds going to the Dublin Simon community. The album was actually recorded recorded live at St. Patrick's Cathedral in December of last year. It also features works from Lisa O'Neill, Liam Winley and Damien Rice, whose song Astronaut, in fact, we played here on the programme on Tuesday evening. But also contributing to the album, Ilan Piper, Louise Mulcahy and writer and presenter Mancon McGann, both of whom join me this evening and delighted to have both of you here. Louise, um, this, it's, it's a wonderful project and there's like a phenomenal uh, array of Irish talent contributing music. How did you become involved in, in this album version, I suppose, of, of the busking event. Well, good evening, Sean. So lovely to be on the programme and to chat to you. Of course, this is an incredibly special uh, collaboration and um, very special uh, EP. This was made possible by a, a very talented group of people, director uh, of Collective, uh, Mark Logan, and co-founder of Collective. And of course, his incredibly talented uh, team of people who work so tirelessly and selflessly uh, to bring this project to fruition. Uh, Mark, I had met Mark a number of months uh, prior to uh, December 2021, uh, performing in the Sugar Club and I was really honoured when he contacted me to perform with Man Con uh, on this particular album. Um, a certainly a really poignant, moving, special uh, performances and series of performances throughout the whole entire EP. And, and yourself then, Mancon, when when you knew you were being teamed up with uh, Louise, at what point did you start talking Sean O'Reilly as, as you did for, for in terms of the poetry? Probably minutes before, like the beauty of of this whole, um, the busk last year, the Stevens Green busk or the Grafton Street busk was that it was so spontaneous and last minute. You know, the Gardaí said it couldn't happen on the street. So they thought, okay, we're just going to have to cancel it for another year because of COVID. And then Mark Logan and Bono and Glenn and a few other people decided, no, this has to happen. So they contacted St. Patrick's Cathedral and St. Patrick's, in their goodness, just they opened the doors to us. They said, come in, you can have whatever you want. So we were in, you know, the building which is like the, we hadn't negotiated for months. We hadn't brought a big crew or big lighting. Wow. It was just we were snuck in the side door, really. And St. Mm-hmm. Patrick said, do what you need. Make this your outdoor space. And so all the musicians came along and nobody was quite sure what we were going to do. Like I had never met Louise before in my life. I knew of her reputation and I knew how she had been gifted Liam O'Flynn's um, pipes. And uh, it was that night that Mark said, probably no, a few hours, maybe in the afternoon, Mark said, you know, you could team up. The two of you could team up together. And I always knew what the poem I wanted to do. I've been like bowled over by the, a particular poem by Sean O'Reardon for years just because of its absolute power punch. You know, we think of Irish poetry as something we learn in school or something to do with the Aran Islands or about tradition. And Sean O'Reardon was such an ultra-modern yeah. poet. Well, and he had this poem called Ní Cádavach. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Cádavach Anam Dundan Sin Mancon. Which is kind of, it's kind of tricky Irish. And Sean O'Reardon had a tendency to make up his own words. So, Cadavach, <laughs> you know, it's not, Cadavach, it is not allowed, nav him, um, disinterest. <laughs> but his, and luckily there's been a wonderful translation of it by Greg Delante called Apathy is Out. And basically it's a poem, it's a poem saying, 
we must care. We must have mm. compassion for the planet, for our neighbours, for the world, for every insect, for every for every wounded, sick person. It was like Sean O'Riordan at his most humanitarian and his most compassionate. Yeah, and, and extraordinary when you think that this was written, you know, it, it sounds as if it could have been written yesterday, in fact, but it, it's it's almost a half a century old, I suppose, at this point in time. But uh, uh, Mancon mentioned it there, Louise, uh, the pipes that you have. It's the Lemo, the Lemo Flinid. Yeah, it's more an honor them, will she the gums? Um, such an honor to have those beautiful uh, flat set of pipes uh, were made about 35 years ago. They were entrusted to me by Nepibrialin, the Society of Villain Pipers in Dublin. And it's such an honor to have those pipes. I think of the incredible legacy Limo Flynn has left. And of course, he's worked with poets, uh, Seamus Heaney. So on the night to connect with Mancon mm. and that passion and intensity was really moving on so many levels. And I think everybody in the room, you know, we were all there for, for the same reason, but to connect like that was incredibly special and, and Mancon's in, uh, passion and intensity and you know delivery of the poem Sean O'Riordan poem uh, allowed me really a call and response on that particular flat mm. set of pipes of course uh, playing a slow air it has particular haunting notes and especially on that set of pipes it has a tonal quality and a depth which really allows one to I suppose convey um, and intensify emotion really yeah. on the night Well let's have a listen I, I won't be able to listen to all of it but I want to get a, a, a section of the poem and a little bit of that slow air that you're accompanying him with, uh, accompanying Moncon with Louise and then that you go off on, on a little uh, flight of fantasy a- afterwards yourself. But let's have a listen to, <laughs> to a section of Ni Kadvok Nyavhim. I love the idea, you know, disinterest is simply not allowed. It's a, it's a great phrase. Let's have a listen. Nil Quill, Nil Lawan, Nil Bach. Dar chrohig dia nil far, nach dul gestoin alas. Nil ban ni chadavach nav him, a yen of da nimni. There's not a fly, a mot, a bee, man or woman created by God, whose welfare is not our responsibility. To ignore their predicament isn't all. Nil galt ing laun ning alt, nor qui doing seal em ash. A shunnakan onad um priam har ar gyaun ar dinus in the vyawa. There's not a mad man in Mad Valley that we shouldn't sit with and keep company. Since he's sick in the head on our behalf, Nil art. Nil shrok, nil shkach, da ir gulti eid nil lach. Vidish huig, hir, hir no no has, nar kart doing machnev er hir, le gyaun is le boyacht. There's not a place, a stream, a bush, however remote, or, or a flagstone, north, south, east, or west that we shouldn't consider without affection and empathy. Da ad oin afrikhas, da irte i galach, is quid doin iad o hiat, nil oit er fud na krinna, na oit eseliach shinna. No matter how far South Africa, no matter how distant the moon, they're part of us by right. There's not a single spot anywhere that we're not a part of. 
we issue from everywhere. Just uh, the opening section there of, of that Nikyad Vachnyav hymn from Louise Mulcahy on Pipes and Mankon began reciting the poetry of Sean O'Reardon. That, that mention in there, Mankon, of, you know, Da'a doing Afrikas, no matter, you know, how, no matter how far away South Africa is, was it written in and around the time of the, the whole apartheid regime coming to a head in South Africa? Was that part of O'Reardon's thoughts there, do you think? Yeah, and as you know, well, as you know, he was so political and he just put out a, a sort of a collection of poems every decade and they sort of changed. So in the mm. 50s, they were a bit small, you know, a bit more narrow. In the 60s, they had, they had increased. And by the 70s, he was, he was strong. He was political. He was, he had lost a lot of his health. He had suffered so many bouts of TB that he didn't have the same energy. But his, his compassion and his urge for issues, yeah. for political issues around the world and just for yeah, justice had, had, had increased. And, yeah. and the, the spontaneity of all of that, Louise, was it? the case of you, you kind of went into St. Patrick's you started the drone going Mancon started reciting and then off you went was it that spontaneous? It was incredibly spontaneous and I think we did it in one take um, <laughs> and I, th- I just think we both connected in a way that was just magical on the night and I, as I said the Mancon's delivery and, and that emotional intensity in that poem really you know I suppose inspired me in so many ways when I was performing with Mancon. Well, listen, I hope it's the beginning, as they might say in a film, uh, I hope this is the beginning of a beautiful relationship. The pipes and <laughs> the pipes and the, and the words are made to be together, Mancon. Can we can we expect something more? I'd love to. Yeah, there are there's so many sort of overlooked classics in Irish poetry and Irish text that would be just so beautiful to bring out to wider people. And the perfect, as you said, the perfect blend, the perfect yeah. cousin is the Ellen Pipes. And just the way, the, you know, Louise's way, way of playing them is so well, potent. Well, listen, listen. That's Louise Mulcahy there and Mancon McGann, just two of the many contributors to the Busk record. Also features Bono, Glenn Hansard, Lisa O'Neill, many more great Irish artists. The album will be on sale physically from tomorrow from the offices of Dublin Sign Community on Camden Street. It's also in Tesco stores, Golden Discs and from dedicated website which has been set up to support the project, thebuskrecord.com. Now it is available uh, on, on streaming places as well but they're asking you to go to those thebuskrecord.com or dublinsimon.ie to find out full details and that is our lot for this Thursday evening. Leah Murphy, Paula Shields and Claire, and Claire McQuaid researched. Amandine Passo-Devine was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Brookless was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Sinead Egan. I'll be back with you tomorrow night, Friday night, 7 o'clock as usual here on RT Radio 1. For some reason my ad break has suddenly stopped so we shall continue for, and we will try to deal with that in a, in a while. Love Songs is a new dance show by choreographer Philip Connaughton. It opens at the Project Arts Centre in Dublin next week. Philip's work often takes its inspiration from his late mother. This time he began to wonder what his grandparents who were born before 1900 would make of his life as a gay man in the 21st century. The result is a show full of light and shade played out to a disco beat. Helen Jordan sings songs of love and loss live on stage and the dancers include Philip himself, Isabel Oberlander and Fergus O'Croher and delighted to have Philip in studio with us this evening. Um, first of all, Philip, your your mother died since we we last spoke. I think you were in a couple of months. Was it about six months since you were? In yes, I was in for um, I think party scene or I, I can't remember. We mm. we were in talking about something. <laughs> Sometimes it's been a really busy year, and uh, yeah, I was actually working on a show Wake. 
that was mm. on in the Fringe Festival. And uh, yeah, she she yeah. came to the end of her journey, but uh, it was great. I got to be with her, and it was uh, it was as positive as it can be in those circumstances. But she was ready to go, and she had been part of very much a part of the recent projects that uh, dance works that you have made. Yeah, she ended up being such an inspiration to me all my entire life. But like, uh, I suppose being a carer and living with somebody with dementia, um, uh, you you know, my work seeps into art and art seeps into work. And I, I decided to kind of figure out how that how that would um, how how that would what how I could make a show out of that, and it ended up being a really positive experience for both of us, actually. Yeah. So then, um, this show is centres more around your grandparents. Is it, is it all of the grandparents or part of the grand? Well, the I, say, I suppose what it. W- I suppose what it is, I, I focus on my grandparents a lot because all of my grandparents uh, were all born pre-1900s. Now, I know you're shocked because you're thinking, he's so young here. How could that possibly be? But, uh, but Your like, grandparents my, were very old. My yes. grandparents were very old. That's the thing. And uh, my maternal grandmother, who's the, the youngest of them all, who was the one that I knew she died when I was very young, uh, she was born in 1898. And I suppose quite often if I'm anxious or I'm going on stage or I'm a bit nervous, I always think I want to get people behind me, you know, and... The people who are the reason that I'm here on this earth, you know, they're going to have my back. And I suppose at one stage I had this niggling little anxious fear that, oh, God, what about with my life choices if these people might not be totally in agreement with how I'm living my life? It was just a kind of, it was just a thought and that which led to another thought, which really uh, led to me kind of thinking, oh, God, what are relationships of love that I'm not considering right now because I maybe don't have the building blocks in place societally to um, to even consider them? And so that was the beginning of Love Songs. Yeah, and, and uh, just sticking with the, the thoughts around what your grandparents, how they may or may not have felt. About, yeah, I mean, about, it's... it's you know, Really hypothetical. Yeah, was it? Was it one of those one of those things that you kind of you start scratching it, and the more you scratch it, the more the itchier it gets. Yes, know? absolutely. That you, you start to, you started to get more and more anxious, if that's the right word, about what they might have thought and felt about you. Yes, and I spoke to one of my best friends who's who's trans, and uh, and then we were talking about it, and, and you know, and and particularly like with the, with the idea of you know, in 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 such a progressive country like Ireland, where I can completely be my full homosexual mm. self, um, uh, it, things have changed so rapidly. Well, uh, I was going to say, uh, would you have even said been able to say that? I mean, that's a very full and positive statement that you've just made, would you have been able to say that even five, six, ten years ago? I, I imagine five years ago, ten years ago. I, I, well, the further back you go, the more complex it gets, mm. right? But um, but I was talking to my, my, my pal and 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 we were saying, God, you know, maybe the, the grandparents may have had a kind of a biblical sense of homosexuality, if not a personal sense of mm. it, because we don't know, right? Mm. But um, they would have had a sense of, I don't know, something like sodomy or something, you know, it would have been something that was familiar to them. But for my trans pal like they might not have even had the building blocks in place or the, the language in place to yeah. even have a con- con- concept of that so that's when I we really got to thinking God who are we not considering who are those things now since all of that happened I've been thinking a lot about love and pinpointing what love is is a very complex thing and the moment you try to kind of say oh this is love or this is love or this is a relationship or this is a relationship of love it begins to suddenly fall flat and because it's such a huge 
subject matter. Well, you, know? you wouldn't be the first person in the world now to find it difficult to pin love down. I think it's it's fairly safe to say. So you went. Did you decide that love songs perhaps would be a way? I, I, when I say love songs, I mean songs that are about love would be a way of approaching that or looking at it yeah I felt like um, if I'm going to do this uh, if I'm going to make a piece like this with a lot of the work I make actually I think there's it's very important to have an anchor for the audience mm. so something to hold on to and then they can dive off or jump in to the other areas as they wish but there's something in music and love songs that we all relate to and Helen, Helen Jordan, Jordan who's uh, in absolutely incredible who's um, just the most amazing performer who's had a whole career of singing love songs and so she has a way of connecting with the audience which is really very special while we the dancers uh, get to dive into the kind of the more complex the, the the things that words find hard to describe and that the body is very good at uh, kind of expressing we can do that while she's we're tethered to her in these love songs and in terms of the types of love songs that I did you choose them or did yourself and Helen sort of work on that together how, how broad is the 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 types of genres that we're hearing how broad is the period from what periods do they come that type of thing so I had a I had a list of songs that I really really wanted to work with and Helen is very brave artist and she'd said to me look I want to um, I, I, I've been singing uh, a similar set for quite a long time now she says I want to go outside my comfort zone so of course that was the perfect that was a perfect excuse for me she to said get that out working. loud yes she with did with you in the room <laughs> yes she did and uh, <laughs> so we were working with that and then we've got a, a uh, a sound designer, Luca Trovarelli, who is kind of taking some ideas from different sounds and different genres of music that I particularly like. We're using Puccini, we're using, you know, uh, Neil Young, we're using, I think, uh, Bucks Fizz is in there somewhere. You know, there's a bit of everything, really. It's Puccini, quite eclectic. Neil Young and Bucks Fizz. Yeah. That's quite, that's quite a broad Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bridge. Now, they're not, uh, uh, yeah. uh, Helen is, is, is singing uh, straightforward songs, but in the sound kind of yes. scape, these other things yeah. appear. Amanda Lear's uh, Follow Me, is that part of the... It's one of my favourite all-time songs, yeah. Well, let's have a listen to it and we can find out. This is, this is, is this the sound of love in your mind? It's some, there's something transcendental and important about it. That's a part of Amanda Lear's song Follow Me and it's one of the songs featured in Love Songs a new dance show from choreographer Philip Connaughton who's with me in, in studio this evening and I was asking you a little bit about Amanda Lear as we were listening to that song um, Helen Jordan sings that, that uh, version of Follow Me in the show uh, Philip but I think Amanda Lear probably best know, better known in Europe than she than Amanda Lear would be known in either yes, Ireland I, or England. I lived or the in UK. I lived in Barcelona for fourteen years, so I was uh, that I, I discovered her in Barcelona, oh. and it was kind of on the on the club scene. Amanda Lear was really big, and I was like, "Who is this? Who is this?" And they were like, "How the hell don't you know?" So she had like a a massive career, I think, from the sixties, seventies up up, up mm. until probably the end of the seventies, and. Um, 
um, yeah, and was quite a an ambiguous kind of character, and was 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 steeped in anonymity. And there's questions about gender and transsexuality and everything like that, and uh, just really beautiful. And the words uh, of that song, there's something kind of about you know, follow me. It's about surrender. It's about giving in. It's also about moving on and stepping over to the other mm. side or into something else that's really mysterious. And also, you know, follow me. Obviously, in terms of in, in really simple terms for a dancer, you know, one dancer maybe leads in the dance, and it is a ki- follow me is a, it has a kind of a kind of a potency and a, another set of meanings in terms of dancing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, I mean, they'll all know their steps, so you know they won't need to follow <laughs> anyone. <else>. But, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's the, I, it's just such a rich it's just such a rich piece of music, and uh, it was really great grateful that uh, Helen was was willing to sing it and uh, take it to such an interesting place. It's a very special moment in the show, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. What? what how would you describe the tone of this of this particular piece? Because I'm thinking of a party scene, which was the last. Uh, I think that was actually what you were in talking about, which was. Yes. In and around the whole area of chemsex uh, and, and and clubbing and and various drug abuse of that. And, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and wake then, which was in and around rituals, yes. around yes. Uh, death. I death suppose. And the, how, how does the tone of love songs compare to those two shows? I, oh gosh! I mean, for me, they're all kind of connect. Well, they're all kind of connected because I have this kind of club culture uh, thing, which would which I, I carry mm. through, which would be and kind of related you, to party guess, scene, well. and, and they all come from me and and, and other collaborators. And um, but with with party scene or with love songs, I should say the latest one, it's more about trying to figure out. So I have Helen, who's this amazing tether. I've got this incredible cast of dancers who pull everything together and dive into the unknown and then I'm in the middle with the audience figuring out trying to figure out the answers all of this with a lot of sparkle and costume and beauty because that's why I started show business No Control in fact was the last show you were in No Control oh I was in for No Control (laughs) it was a busy year I told you (laughs) finally um, you're just coming uh, from rehearsal today you open next Wednesday how scary a a spot are you at now do you know what I was uh, if you asked me this morning the answer would have been different to this evening so I'm feeling much better this evening than I did this morning. <laughs> Very scary this morning. Not so bad this not evening. Not so bad this evening. Yeah, totally. Talk to me tomorrow. Yeah. I'll <laughs> be totally different again. Well, thanks for coming in to us. Thank Best you very much, with the remainder of the rehearsals. That's Philip Coniston. And Love Songs is at the Project Arts Centre from the 14th through until the 17th of December. You can find further details on the website, projectartcentre.ie. Night on Arena. White Noise, The Silent Twins and Nocebia are their movies up for review and Louise Mulcahy and Mancon McGann on their part in the album The Busk Record. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. And we start tonight, as always, on the Thursday with film reviews in Noah Baumbach's adaptation of Don DeLillo's White Noise, All Sound and Fury. Is it that? But does it signify anything at all? Ava Green stars in Lorcan Finnegan's psychological horror, Nocebo, and The Silent Twins, based on a true and tragic story of Welsh twins who refuse to communicate with the world at large. Joining us to discuss this week's film releases are Gemma Cray and Dave Hanratty. And let's start with 
White Noise, um, a, a sprawling, era-defining novel from Don DeLillo, long-defied attempts to adapt it for the big screen. We were speaking about uh, unfilmable books last night on the programme. But Noah Baumbach was not to be put off. He's finally filmed White Noise with Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig in the leading roles. So, Gemma, who are they in these leading roles Well, we have Adam Driver as Professor Jack Gladney. So he is an expert in Hitler studies. He's a kind of happily married man to his very passive and forgetful wife, Babette. He's the father of a collection of children from several marriages. And and he's just someone who's very, very satisfied with his life. And and he's going along sort of the king of his castle, so to speak, until one day uh, the airborne toxic event happens. So I think this is spiritually very similar to all of us who've just lived through COVID. It was this mysterious event and and there's all this kind of chatter about it. No one knows exactly what's going on. The information that's coming out changes every so often. So you can really, really see why this was a COVID adapted book. Yeah, um, has, has did the pandemic and the events around that, as Gemma just described, you know, the airborne toxic event, <laughs> you, could, you could call it that in some ways, couldn't you? Did, are there suddenly parallels there with white noise that maybe weren't there previously, Dave? I think so, yeah. A modern audience can't help but relate to it in the way that Gemma just indicated there. And at the same time, though, I mean, at this point, I think with a lot of those films, it's the last thing an audience wants to see. <laughs> I thought that, that it was the most interesting part of the film. I actually thought it was the most kind of resonant one. And like, this is kind of a four-act structure. And as you say, Jean, it is sprawling it is very sprawling um, and the second act is kind of the airborne toxic event the fallout thereof and how the character dynamics and the family dynamics change how people react to a crisis and yeah you can definitely kind of paste yourself onto you know project yourself onto the screen and be like oh we've gone through a similar thing here yeah. but it is also very heightened very exaggerated and very very satirical uh, the other thing is you, you talked you, I talked about it being a, a sprawling novel it's a sprawling family <laughs> that's yeah. involved here isn't it Gemma yeah you do it's following a very a bunch of different threads so you have um you have uh, Adam Driver's character who's you know who's the happy king of his castle who's kind of been thrown into the 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 kind of deep end when he's you know he's been out in that toxic gas and now mm-hmm. he's terrified that at some stage maybe perhaps he could die in the future so i think this is it keeps going back to themes of fear of death but the concept of death, so it's not really a visceral thing. It's more of of a of a of a, of a thought experiment. Which All right. Yeah. Well, let's listen to uh, some members of the Gladney household. That's the that's the family that we're talking about. Veering towards panic as news of the so-called toxic event filters through. Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig in this scene as Babette. Both. No, it won't come this way. How do you know? Because it won't. It's perfectly calm and still today. When there's a wind this time of year, it blows that way, not this way. What if it blows this way? It won't. But what if just this one time? It won't. Why should it? They just closed part of the interstate. They would want to do that, of course. Why would they? They just would. It's a sensible precaution. It's a way to facilitate movement. Hold on, Helen. Jack is here. The stovers say the spill from the tank card was 35,000 gallons. She said her girls were complaining of sweaty palms. It's been a correction. Told them they ought to be throwing up. Is anyone nauseous? Okay, okay. Thanks, Helen. Yes, stay in touch. The stovers spoke directly with the weather center outside Glassboro. They're not calling it a feathery plume anymore. 
there you go. You can hear the panic. That's a, a scene from White Noise. And you can hear Dave Hanratty, the, the panic beginning to come in, almost like a, con- a feeling of contagion or films like that. So, you, you, like, if I heard that clip, I think, oh, is this just a big thriller around this type of event? Uh, it isn't, no. Uh, that's one oh, act. Oh, it's a uh, Yeah, like I say, it's one diverting act of four and easily the best one. And weirdly enough, uh, in terms of what it follows, I thought that was actually one of the more, more patient, soothing moments of the film because this opens up, man, with, like, people speaking at each other, speechifying as if they're in a Shakespeare play. And there's this big kitchen sequence in which every member of the family, and they are clearly the nuclear American family mm. and the stereotypes thereof, especially in the 80s. And they're all going at, at once. They're all speaking at the same time in this kind of rhythm and this flow that I think a lot of audiences are going to check out pretty quickly because you can't really keep up with it. That is, of course, the point. It's meant to be a barrage. It's meant to unsettle you. But this is seriously esoteric territory. If you've ever read a Don DeLillo book, you'll know what you're in for. If you've seen Cosmopolis or Robert Pattinson, you'll know what you're in for. And it's not the most accessible of texts. But that scene, when it all goes a bit crazy, I was eyes were glued to the screen. And then it eventually diverts away from it. And I really wanted it to stay there longer. So you wanted it to stick with that that kind of um, panic stations. But we have a Hitler expert in the midst of all of this. How does that fit into what we're being told more so, I think it's how everyone, instead of or, or kind of separating themselves from the idea of Hitler and kind of complimenting him on his mm. choice, because he invented Hitler as a as a as a subject and he owns that now. So he's he's kind of cashing in on that. But I will actually I just want to add to um, what was said there about um, the that feel of it. If you look at like Noah's past work, it's very theatrical. It's very mm. like two actors a back and forth and I think that's what he does with this but without natural dialogue with that kind of very heightened very over the top dialogue that sticks in the in the actor's throat and it, like it kind of is the worst of both worlds in and a is, way is, is that perhaps because he, is he sticking too closely to the source material is he lifting dialogue from a novel which isn't necessarily the best idea yeah like he okay so the, the 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 airborne toxic event, the toxic airborne event. It's a really cool um, concept. It's mm. a really visual piece, and there's there's these really cool cinematic visual and physical moments that are just over in seconds, and then we're back to two people talking about these yeah. abstract concepts and how and and in, in a very kind of controlled way where you can see the writer, you can see them. Right. Well, let's listen to Adam Driver then as Hitler Studies Professor Jack Gladney. Virtuoso lecture performances, how this is described on his expert topic. Picture Hitler near the end, trapped in his Fuhrer bunker beneath the burning city. He looks back to the early days of his power when crowds came, mobs of people overrunning the courtyard, singing patriotic songs, painting swastikas on the walls, on the flanks of farm animals. Crowds came to his mountain villa. Crowds came to hear him speak. Crowds erotically charged. The masses he once called his only bride. Crowds came to be hypnotized by the voice, the party anthems, the torchlight parades. But wait! That's Adam Driver uh, in White Noise. <laughs> he's not going for the understated performance here, Dave. I'm guessing he's having a he's having a tremendous time, isn't he? And like this is clearly. But a are feast. we watching him? 
No, this is the thing, yeah. It's a feast for the actors, but for the audience, not so much. I mean, obviously, Noah Baumbach goes back a long way with Adam Driver. He's obviously a professional and personal partner of Greta Gerwig's. He's, he, it's, it's mates. It's, these are mates having a fun time, adapting a novel that they probably all love, and audience be damned. I mean, this has been picked up by Netflix, which I find baffling, because a lot of people are just going to be like, oh, man, Adam Driver, I love him. Give it a go for 20 minutes, see if you can keep up with it. You probably can't. I mean, like that scene there as well, it's clear in its intention. It's satirizing academia and the pretentious nature thereof. But for two hours and 16 minutes, like for the most part, right. and even him kind of going into his home mortality stuff, I just didn't connect to it emotionally. Other performances, anybody stand out for you, Gemma? I will say this, if it wasn't Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig, they do have a good chemistry. Um, there's uh, there's a bit of a reveal in there and there's this beautiful moment between them that you go mm. in despite of all this, but yeah. despite the fact that they're actually not even real characters, they're just figures of satire, that they have this beautiful intimate moment and I actually think it... it it it's it does sell it like there are nice things within this. It's just they do not gel right. together. Um, I, I think the the kids stood out for you. The kids you? are great. Yeah, I mean played by uh, Rafi Cassidy, who previously appeared in Vox Lux and the Killing of a Sacred Deer. She's the eldest daughter. She's quite inquisitive and steals a lot of scenes. And then you have another pair, a brother and a sister, played by mm. a real life brother and sister, Sam Navola and May Navola, who are the daughters of actors Emily Mortimer and Alessandra Navola. So it's a real kind of these are nepotism yeah. babies. I'm willing to allow because they're actually very good in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And Don Cheadle is. There as well. Don Cheadle's in there doing his Don Cheadle thing. He's a solid hand. I just found the whole thing to be in search of nothing. In search of nothing. Does it get any stars from you, Dave? Uh, it does, yeah. I'm a generous guy. It gets a two and a half out of five. Two and a half out of five. What are you saying? I, I think the production design and, and those those moments, mm. those lights performances did kind of save it a tiny bit for me. So I give it three. Three. Okay. So kind of middle of the road is what I'm getting from both of you on that one. Let us move on to film number two, Nocebo. Life should be perfect for Christine, one would think, as this film opens Gemma. Um, but you don't get psychological horror if life is perfect the whole way through the film. It has to go wrong, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, well, you always can tell if, if a film starts off well, it's always going to end terribly. Like, <laughs> So um, uh, Christine lives in a beautiful big house with her rich, successful husband and her private school educated daughter. She has an enviable life steeped in privilege Um and she's a fashion designer designing kids' clothes and she has her own business, but then she receives some devastating news. So the story really picks up about six months later um, when we see that she's been sort of set upon by this mysterious illness that's been brought on by a supernatural tick bite. So it's like a, a very intense version mm. of um, Lyme disease. So she has tremors, she can't function, she can barely mind her um, daughter Bob's, played by Billy Gadsden, and she's struggling until a knock at the door and we yeah. have Diana. And tell us what, what happens when the knock comes at the door. Who is there, Dave? Uh, there's a lady there called Diana and she says she is her new carer. She's her live-in carer mm. and she says that she was hired by Eva Green herself. Eva Green has no recollection of this but she's having trouble with her memory. So straight away this character is a bit off. There's definitely something going on underneath the surface but we're not quite sure what. Mark Strong, as noted, is the kind of, you know, the marketing executive husband and he's suspicious of it as well but Eva Green is in <coughs> such a state of disarray that she needs this person to 
come into her life. She does. There's tension initially, but thanks to her unique abilities, they begin to form a bond. Yeah, um, and, and she, Eva, Eva Green's character spends a lot of time in pain or certain she can be going along. Suddenly she's in pain and we get a sense of that in, in this scene here where she collapses initially in pain. Mark Strong as her husband, Felix, is there as well. And then Chai Fonassier as Diana, who in the middle of this scene passes her healing hands uh, over Christine and you'll hear the effect. Okay? You alright? Okay? Come on, let's get you up. Can I help? No, no. She just needs rest is all. We know what to do. Can I try? It's okay. I can help. It's okay, it's okay. I make it go away. Pain goes and laughter replaces it. That's Ava Green uh, in that scene from Nocebo. And you also heard that the healing hands have been laid upon her by Chai Fanassier and her husband, Mark Strong. Uh, we spoke to Lurkin Finnegan about this um, film, he, he's the, he being the director. I mean, getting Ava Green, the cast that he has is extraordinary. Ava Green, Mark Strong and Chai Finassier, all of them extraordinary performers. And again, I wonder as well, is there something to do with, um, it's actually quite closed. Like a lot of the, the setting is is in that house and there's mm. very little outside of it. And if you look at Vivarium as well. Um, Which that was his was previous film with Jesse Eisenberg one. and Imogen Poots, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, does he promise like a quick turnaround mm. <laughs> and, and is very convincing um, which is which is part of it because it's not a big sprawling thing. It's quite a contained story. So it is really and it, it is really about the character dynamics between um, Diana and Christine and 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 how that power shifts and and changes yeah. and moves. Yeah, and I don't want to give too much away, but we we get a shift um, into the world of fast fashion. That becomes a very important topic in uh, and theme in what Finnegan is doing here, Dave. Very much so, yeah. Eva Green's character is clearly the, the picture of privilege. I mean, the house that they're in is ridiculous. Mm. I mean, it's like it, you've never seen a more enviable place ever. And the character of Diana, uh, she comes from the Philippines. Uh, she's clearly from like a lesser developed part of the world. And it's, it's about the conflict between the more privileged people who say like, you know, run fast fashion and people who may have been affected by it on another part of the world that we don't consider in our daily lives. Now, Lorcan Finnegan and his writer Gareth Shanley have been at pains to say that this film, obviously written by written and read by two white men, you know, that they went to the Philippines, that they've received searched, you know, folklore. And, and sections the, of the film are set there. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And like, again, like, you know, you're dealing with folk magic, you're dealing with well, the suggestion thereof. And like, you know, it's kind of, 
like it's it's very much about one culture versus another and you know a reckoning perhaps coming in between there's a collision between them and i think for audience as well like i mean it's so clear that the director and the writer have taken extra careful steps here to try and represent things as best as possible they spoke to witch doctors they cast locally they have a lot of filipino extras they're trying to cover their tracks essentially and i think for the most part the film gets the balance right but you could also potentially see people say well are these outdated stereotypes that you're dealing with essentially i think it does get away with it i think it does kind of make a, a well-intentioned statement about the world uh, that we live in today yeah. and it does it does it makes that statement through a mixed jamma of you know this supernatural quality and the healing powers of diana and other aspects of the film that have a supernatural uh, or another dimension involved in and yet there's a social realism in terms of the theme that they're addressing. Do, 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 they, do they manage to strike that balance? I would say the realism bit, it does feel continuously heightened. Um, there's a nice kind of struggle between uh, Christine and Diana. And again, like the, the tension as it as it kind of ramps up is very heightened. And one of the things that keeps doing and, and one is, is one of the reasons why it's it's a co-production with the Philippines mm. as well. And as you had mentioned, actually, they had um they had a local writer advising on those scenes yeah. they had local producers <clears throat> they that like they definitely did kind of do due diligence in in respect to that and again i think Lorcan would ca- like say the the parallels between um their cultural and our historical yes he made culture. that point to me that he saw uh, parallels between i suppose the celtic and the the druidic culture here and the culture that they they found in the philippines um another young actor who's worth mentioning here is the daughter who really kind of manages to keep us on the edge as to where the supernatural quality is coming from. This is Billy Gadsden, I think, is her her name. That is her name, yeah. It's a really good performance uh, because she's quite precocious and she's quite standoffish and quite cold. But as the film goes on, you learn about why she is that way and she has her justifications thereof Mm -hmm. and she forms a unique relationship with Diana as well. I think for the most part, this is a very well-contained piece of work. I mean, I think like it uses its locations extremely well. It's small cast extremely well. Everyone kind of gets their moment in the sun. Um, it's a psychological horror film. I think it, it isn't scary, which I think is a problem. Mm. I wish it was, but it looks gorgeous. It should be said. Like, I mean, Lorcan Finnegan and the cinematographers really know how to make this thing look really, really sharp, really, really handsome. It's making very interesting points and arguments. I just think it's a little bit predictable. And unfortunately, it's not scary, which I think it needs to be. You wanted more more frights. Stars out of five from you. Uh, it's a three. Could be talked into a three and a half. You could be talked into a three and a half. What are you, where are you with it, Gemma? Well, I, I liked it. I thought it was sharp. I thought it, it was tense, especially in the beginning. And mm. I'm a sucker for that social commentary. So I'd, I'd say three and a half as well. So you're going, you, you were talked, you talked yourself into the three and a half. Right? <laughs> no, you, I was you there. didn't need yeah. to be talked into it. All right, let us move on then to our third and final film, The Silent Twins, based on real events. Deeply strange story of two sisters who grew up in Wales in the 1960s. Um, I suppose we we know we need to find out who these twins are first of all, Dave. Where are they, and why are why are they silent? Yeah, this is a harrowing real life story. Actually, I mean, it's told with a, a huge, uh, I guess, injection of magical realism in terms of its presentation. But it is telling the true life story of June and Jennifer Gibbons, who are twin, twin sisters who were born ten minutes apart. They grew up in small town Wales. Their family initially moved over from Barbados to England, but then later settled in Wales and. It's in the kind of early 60s, or late, late, late 60s, early 70s. The kids, the twins in particular, were very withdrawn. Uh, they're the only black children in their community. They were bullied at school. There was even reports that they were let off early so that they would maybe try and diminish that because the school didn't know what to do with them, essentially. The society didn't know what to do with them. And what they did was they retreated into a world of their own. They spoke to nobody else, including members of their immediate family. And they relied on their overactive imagination to create stories. It's almost like they got some kind of psychic bond, but they live 
a very, very closed off life from the rest of the world. And the way it's depicted here is quite oppressively sad. Uh, so I, I wondered about that because, again, sometimes that bond between twins, Gemma, can be treated almost like a, a supernatural link or a, another worldly type of link. How do they manage that in this film? Well, um, the director, Agnieszka Smoknitska, she has a history of, of dealing with magic realism. So I wonder, mm. definitely, did that feed into it? So she created this wonderful, um, wonderfully rich world where you have flights of fantasy. So there's one section where they get news that they're going somewhere. I'm not going to say where, but mm. like that, they, it's not particularly in a nice place, but they picture it to be amazing. Yeah. You have um, a lot of the characters we see through or that are revealed quite later depicted in as these very disturbing looking stop motion animation puppets it's it's curated in a way that you, you're, the real world is is gritty it, it's tough it's it's real they they watch it from a distance a lot of the time mm. when they're a little bit older they're there in their window with their binoculars like watching the neighbours having those real experiences and lives and a little bit sort of trapped like you get the sense continuously as as a pair that they do realise what they've done and, and that they can't escape yeah. each other well, it actually here's a scene that maybe gives us a sense of ways they're trying to escape. They're considering writing, in fact, as a possible outlet for themselves. Letitia Wright and Tamara Lawrence as June and Jennifer Gibbons from The Silent Twins. The room took on the presence of a heavy hush, accompanied by the shadowed whispers of a growing secret. The writing school. Correspondence course in creative writing and only improves your writing style, but helps you sell your stories. Jenny. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Says £89 enrollment fee. How are we going to afford that? Says in order to qualify for the course, what not to write about. Editors as a class dislikes drunkards, lunatics, drug addicts, prostitutes and authors, crippled or deformed key characters, unpleasant children, adolescents who smoke and drink, other editorial dislikes are mental homes, serious or incurable diseases. Funerals are also a taboo. We could do that. That's uh, Letitia Wright there and Tamara Lawrence in a scene from The Silent Twins. And there is a peculiar, I mentioned it as we were listening, there's a peculiar type of vo- uh, vocal delivery there, Dave, from, yeah, from it, both of them. Based on the real life speech of, of of the twins at the heart of the story, essentially. So that is how they speak. That is how they, they communicate. And like it is that kind of diction hmm. throughout. So, you know, you kind of have to get used to that. That's what you get used to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you very quickly do. But you, you mentioned the, the thing about a, a, an oppressive quality, an oppressive sadness in it, in fact. But you do get the uh, the idea from that clip certainly that their ability to communicate with each other is very strong. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about this because it is something of a mysterious story for people who are familiar with it or aren't. Um, you see them communicate um, with certain people selectively so it's not a case of mm. they cannot talk they choose not to and they don't really give a reason why. Now I think as a filmmaker it's a tough place to be in because the audience is going to want to know well what's going on, why is it like this and not to spoil the film but I don't think that there's really a satisfactory answer for this. Now, granted, that is based on real life. That is based Mm. on, like, what position are you in as a filmmaker? I think that the filmmakers here 
really try to protect these people as people and present them as human beings who have been through a very, very difficult time in their lives. And you get those moments of escapism, as you kind of hear there in in that clip that you played. Their imaginations do set them free. But for the most part, even the way it's presented in these kind of muted colours, it should be noted as well, it's the same cinematographer, uh, Jakub uh, Kajowski, who's also on Nocebo. So, All um, right. And, you know, he made that film look really sharp, and this one too. But for the most part, it is quite oppressive. It feels like walls closing in. Now, it should. It's a very sad real-life story. But I did find it to be a very, very tough experience. And what about the, I mean, the performances here? And particularly, I'm thinking of Letitia Wright. We spoke, she's the Black Panther films, obviously. Uh, and also, she was in Aisha, the Frank Berry film about uh, direct provision. Um, she's having a bit of a moment. How is she managing here? And herself and Tamara Lawrence are at the centre of this, really, Jenna. Yeah, so again, their chemistry and dynamic are amazing. So I, mm. I initially saw them cast as twins and I was very very sceptical but um, I, like I know I think it was disgusting casting to have the same actor play both roles but actually I do think it really worked they had this chemistry that was so believable and I think part of what this film really examined was how the most passionate relationships even like not necessarily a romantic relationship but their deep deep bond was the thing that mm. they couldn't live with each other as well that it turns toxic and turns physically violent and i think between um between the pair of them their their chemistry was very intense and palpable and and really sold me the humanity of of that and she's june who's much more amiable Jennifer is, is sort of you get the sense where Jennifer's more of the leader but struggles a little so bit more. So Jennifer is the Tamara Lawrence character and June is the uh, the uh, Letitia Wright yeah. character. So did it work overall with I'll stay with you in this one Gemma did it work overall for you? Yeah I, I really really enjoyed it. Um, I do agree as well that um, it 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 doesn't have that satisfaction at the mm-hmm. end that you would get from yeah. that classic 3X. We, there's no had, like happy resolution, but I did think it was a, a beautiful film, so I'd give it four. Four, you're saying, what are you saying overall here, Dave? I found it really, really tough. I found it, I found it oppressive to a point of almost to a fault, and I don't think it really quite captures the people at the heart of it, despite making clear attempts to. Like, I feel, I, I wish I, quote unquote, enjoyed it more, but it isn't that kind of a film. I think it's admirable in its intention, but I think it kind of falls down, and I'd go two out of five. Two out of five, so it didn't work as well for you, clearly. So those are our three films this evening, The Silent Twins, Nocebo, and White Noise, and our two reviewers, Gemma Cray, and Dave Hanratty. Now, competition for you this evening. We're giving away a pair of tickets to the National Concert Hall on Saturday, the 21st of January, 2023. Yes, that is coming our way. The RTE Concert Orchestra will perform music from Berlioz, Gershwin and Sibelius under Kensho Watanabe, one of the most exciting young conductors to come out of the United States. Full information on the concert and the programme on rte.ie forward slash co. Now, if you fancy a pair of tickets to this lovely classical programme, along with a deluxe room and breakfast in the four-star Ivy Garden Hotel. You just have to answer this question, please. This is I'm going to play a little bit of music now by Gersh, George Gershwin. Features on the soundtrack of a 1951 musical comedy. Have a listen to this. So there you are. Do you recognise that piece of music and the film in which it was used? If you do, text the answer to 51551 along with your own name and contact number and we will announce the winner before the end of tonight's programme.